Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who was accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes, including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our review of the testimony of SLED Senior Special Agent Jeff Croft. In this installment, we begin our review of testimony related to the collection of electronic records regarding the case. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is late morning on Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, the fifth day of the Alex Murdoch murder trial. Judge Clifton Newman invites the state to call their next witness and making his debut for the prosecuting team is South Carolina Assistant Attorney General John Conrad. Conrad, a former Marine in his late 40s, appears tall and fit. His head is shaved and he wears a dark suit, a white shirt, and a dark striped tie. Conrad calls Michael Anthony Kinich to the stand. Kinich sports short graying hair and wears a white dress shirt and a brown and white striped tie. He is a custodian of records at Verizon Wireless and through the witness, Prosecutor Conrad authenticates cellular transmissions made between May 1st and June 10th, 2021, to and from the phones of defendant Alex Murdoch, victims Paul Murdoch and Maggie Murdoch, Alex and Maggie's son Buster Murdoch, and family acquaintances C.B. Rowe, Marty Cook, Connor Cook, and Rogan Gibson. Conrad also introduces a spreadsheet that has information about the transmissions from each of the devices, including caller and receiving numbers, date, time, duration, and cell tower information of calls. In order to help the jury understand how the spreadsheet works, Conrad takes the witness through some of the data on the document. Among the facts that they establish are that Maggie Murdoch made a call at 7.50pm on June 7th, 2021, and that a call came into Maggie's phone at 9.04pm that same night, which went unanswered, as did all subsequent calls to her number. After Mr. Kanich authenticates this data and offers a brief overview of the spreadsheet, Prosecutor Conrad indicates he has no further questions, and Judge Newman invites Dick Harpudlian to question the witness. Harpudlian spends some time clarifying how to interpret some of the data, including how long records are ordinarily kept. He also confirms that the last call made from Maggie's phone was at 7.50pm on the night of the murders. Harpudlian asks how long a phone rings before it goes to voicemail. After Kanich says there is no set time, the defense indicates they have nothing further. John Conrad rises for a brief redirect. 
One quick question, Your Honor. Uh, just to clarify, when the Verizon records indicate that a call is routed to voicemail, I believe you previously testified that could mean the phone itself rang, correct? That is correct. But there's a, another condition the phone could be in as well. Uh, if the phone is turned off and someone dials that number, what would the Verizon record indicate? It would route to voicemail. And it would look exactly the same, correct? Yes. And there's no way to look at these records and tell whether a phone is off, uh, just not answering, or uh, potentially shut off or otherwise not connected to the network, correct? That is correct. Harpudlian follows up with a final set of questions on recross. What about if it's in airplane mode? Does, would it, the same thing happen? Goes to voicemail, right? Airplane mode, it doesn't ring, doesn't answer. It goes to, would it go to voicemail? The network would still try to find where you're located. So if you're in airplane mode, the network may not know where you are, so it would still attempt to ring. And these records don't give you any GPS location on phones, correct? You can't get that GPS. Uh, according to the records that I've seen, um, they have the cell tower information, but not the specific GPS. Cell tower information, depending on how many cells are connecting it, uh, sometimes, I mean, can be very, if you're in New York City and there are five cell towers, you probably get it pretty close, but if you're in uh, rural Carlton County or Hampton County, there's one over here and maybe one way back there, it's much more difficult to find a specific location, correct? Your Honor, state's going to object this Witness is not qualified an expert on self-tower location. You know what you can say? I'm not qualified to answer that. Sir. That information. Just a moment. Response, if you want. Senator, he didn't answer whether he's able to answer the question. However, he's not qualified as an expert. I, I, I don't. All right. You may answer the question, if you can. I would have no way of knowing I'm not qualified as far as the triangulation of the cell tower information. Is that what you were getting ready to say before he objected and said you weren't qualified, or is that something? You that would be a standard You've never response. never testified about location before. Repeat the question. You've never testified about what cell phone tower location uh, means and, and how it's used. I testified to the accuracy of the records that were provided. Okay, thank you. The last two witnesses before the lunch break also relate to cell phones. The first is Paul McManigle, a sergeant with the Charleston County Sheriff's Office who is currently assigned to the United States Secret Service as a Cybercrime Task Force officer. McManigle was tasked with trying to unlock Paul Murdoch's cell phone, but was unsuccessful in the effort. He also technically redacted privileged attorney-client information based on the instructions from the court. And the last witness before the break is Jonathan Van Houten a U.S. Secret Service employee and veteran law enforcement investigator. Van Houten testifies that he was successful in getting Paul's phone unlocked. He extracted the data, but did not examine it. The data was placed on a hard drive and provided to SLED. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. After the lunch break, before the jury returns, Dick Harpudlian raises a chain of custody issue regarding Paul Murdoch's cell phone with Judge Clifton Newman. Your Honor, we've been informed by the Attorney General's been very accommodating. 
that Calvin Moody is going to call this afternoon this morning. One of the witnesses would be Brett Dove, and Brett Dove, I think they'll agree, is the person that did receive the extract um, from, uh, you heard, the Secret Service agent this morning, um, and did some analysis on it. I'd like to show the court uh, State's Exhibit Number 299. That's a receipt of property for Paul Murdaugh's phone. Um, you'll see that Bobby Bancroft um, received it from David Owens, who gave it to Bobby Bancroft, who then gave it to R. Kelly, yeah. and then Paul McGonigal, we heard from this morning, gave it to, he was at the uh, Charleston Sheriff's Office, gave it to, looks like Brian Heddick, who gave it to, well, it got to Brian Heddick at Computer Crimes, I guess by Ryan Kelly. The point I'm trying to make is there are a number of people in the chain of custody on this phone who haven't testified yet. As a result, if Mr. Dove is allowed to testify about contents of the phone, which he received from Secret Service, we believe that breaks, uh, that would that would not complete the chain of custody. All we're saying is call these other people, and I mean, they're not going to be long witnesses, to complete the chain, to authenticate that what exactly came out of that phone was the phone that was found at the scene on Paul Murdaugh's body. I don't know if this is complicated or not, but it seems to me that they ought to have to do that. Mr. Waters. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, just very quickly, as we look at the chain on, on uh, Paul's phone, again, Mr. Conrad is going to call Brett, uh, Lieutenant Dove here in a bit. Uh, we've had testimony from Jason Chapman about David Owen uh, securing that phone. Uh, we've had uh, introduction into evidence, Your Honor, without objection of these both of these chain sheets. There was no qualification or objection to the information on these chain sheets, uh, no hearsay objection or anything like that on both of these, which carried the chain all the way through. Uh, and then, of course, but we have testimony about the collection of that phone. We have testimony from multiple witnesses about the manner in which agents secure phones and, and the likely and the rest of that. And then we have testimony about that phone going essentially through a couple of, of couriers uh, to Paul McGannigal, who just testified as to his uh, involvement with that phone, as well as to his delivery of that back to um, Lieutenant Dove. And then you've had testimony from, uh, from Agent Van Halden, who received that phone and analyzed it and then delivered that back to Lieutenant Dove. And Lieutenant Dove is going to be here uh, to complete that chain. So if you look at the case law, and we do have some cases prepared if you need them, you know, this is not uh, fungible evidence. And the case law is very clear, Your Honor, that chain... Uh, you don't have to call every single person that, that touched the evidence throughout the way, that uh, it only needs to be uh, established as much as is practical. And uh, I think we've done that uh, in, in great detail. Uh, in any That's question. Is it fungible or non-fungible? Is a cell phone uh, fungible or non-fungible? Uh, if you look at the exterior, it's fungible. You can't tell one iPhone 11 from any other one until you open it, okay? But is the phone that was found at Paul, at Paul is that the same phone? And that's why you have the chain. It was cracked open, and they got the material from they want Doug to analyze. Uh, this is an iPhone 11, Your Honor. It's not Paul's. And, and Your Honor, again. Fungible uh, or non-fungible? I, I, I say that it's not fungible, Your Honor. And again, I think we've had, it's, it's clearly not fungible. And there's been a... Like clearly, what do you mean? Well, generally when things are clear, then we don't have a debate. Fair enough. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, I strenuously object, Your Honor. Uh, no, I apologize. Uh, but anyway, um, Your Honor, you know, when you look at something like uh, cell phone evidence and you look at the class of types of evidence that are clearly fungible, those two are, are I think, different in, in the manner in which they exist and the manner in which they are. And uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any case that's ever held a cell phone as to be fungible. It is a, you know, it is a physical item. And additionally, this particular cell phone has a serial number and an IMEI uh, that is a specifically identifiable. 
uh, that cell phones are not fungible. They are specific. They, uh, they have identify, uh, specific identifying information like that. And so, again, I think that uh, given the weight of that and the weight of what we have established, we more than established the chain. Your, Your Honor, I know on this chain of custody, there's no serial number. There's no IME number. There's nothing on this, this uh, doc, these documents. If you have it's a uh, state's exhibit 
Anything further? Last word. Nothing from the state, Your Honor. Nothing from the defense. All right. All right. To the extent that this is a motion to exclude this testimony, uh, the motion is denied. I do not believe that the portion of this case that State v. Pulley that says the the identity of individuals who acquired the evidence and what was done with the evidence between the taking and the analysis must not be left to conjecture. I believe that a cell phone is not a fungible item, but it's complicated to the degree that there was analysis done with the cell phone, but the testimony, particularly the testimony of Van Houten, efficiently establishes that this phone was not tampered with, could not be tampered with, and I believe that the state has sufficiently established a chain, cases of hell that a perfect chain is not necessary, and I believe the state has sufficiently established a chain of custody to the degree necessary that the next witness can testify. So I deny the motion and the objection is noted for the record. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join our next installment as we look at the testimony of one of the defendant's cousins who also built guns for him. Also, check out the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.